Good morning, everybody. My name's Chris. I'm the senior minister at ABC. If we've not met before, so great to have you here, and you're so welcome uh, with us uh, at ABC. And if you're online with us, maybe for the first time, it's great to have you with us too. Uh, this week in, in our family, we've had a big family party because yesterday my dad was 80. And we had a big family celebration. I've got quite a large extended family. And uh, so we all were all together for a big meal together yesterday and then uh, back to their house for a big thing in the afternoon and all that kind of stuff. It was absolutely lovely. And uh, my stepmom said to me, she said, uh, Christopher, they, they call me Christopher in my family. They say, uh, they say Christopher, um, we'd love it if you just say a few words. A few of us are going to say a few words. Would you say a few words? So I said, well, as you know, unaccustomed as I am to public speaking, uh, I'll be, that was a joke. Um, oh dear. Uh, okay, I thought it was quite good, but anyway, there we go. Uh, um, I said, yes, of course, I'll say a few words. And uh, I was thinking then about stories from my dad's life, and I told a few of those stories yesterday, some fun times uh, for us as a, a family and so on. Uh, but one of the things I thought about this week when I was prepping for that uh, was um, nothing to, I didn't actually get to share it yesterday. I did, it wasn't appropriate for yesterday, but I was thinking about it for today, because I was remembering the time when I learned to drive. And my dad uh, taught me to drive. I had driving lessons. And then I remember when I passed my test, the first time my dad gave me the keys to the car and said, you can go out for your first solo drive. And I remember those sort of feelings of, of uh, uh, excitement, responsibility. I didn't feel so responsible that I wasn't happy to like, you know, rage the car down the road and all that kind of stuff. But I still felt partly responsible for the car and all that. And just that level of trust that was being uh, placed in me, even though I'd practiced and, and done my tests and had my lessons and all that kind of stuff, that moment where I got to take the car out for my first solo drive was quite an expression of trust in me from my dad. And uh, I wonder if you've had the same experience. I wonder if you remember that time you were given the keys to the family car, maybe for the first time, to go out on your first solo drive. How that made you feel and the level of trust that was required from you. And I, I'm sure you were excited and maybe a bit nervous in kind of equal measure. But to be trusted like that felt really encouraging, maybe, and exciting. Now, I'm a parent who is now old enough that my own kids have been through their driving lessons and driving tests. And I remember being on the other side of that equation as a dad giving the keys to the car to, to my daughters for the first time for them to go out for their first solo drive. And now I realize the level of trust that was required from the other side of the equation to send them off for their first solo drive with the car and to be sitting at home, to be sending them off, appearing on the outside, to be all calm and unflustered about it, placing full confidence in them, only on the inside as soon as they'd gone away, to be standing by the window waiting for them to arrive back safe and sound. Quite a, a trust thing that took and we've been asking this question this morning on the live chat from our studio already, for those of you who've been joining us online. We've been asking, what does it take to really trust someone? What does it take to build a relationship of trust with another person? Think about that for a moment. Think about a relationship you have with another person where you really trust them. Now, what's it taken to build that relationship of trust? How did you come to that point? Maybe it took some time. 
Maybe it took you being vulnerable with the other person and, and just doing that slowly at first and then taking that seriously and, and not abusing that. And, and so the trust was built and built. We've been asking this about people on the, uh, for, from people on the live chat and they've come back and they've, uh, thank you for, if you're online with us for joining in in that regard. People have been coming back saying, well, uh, tried and trust, trusted. So actually trying something and it working builds a level of trust and confidence. It's about time, other people have been saying, time to invest in the relationship to the point where you feel like you can trust another person. Perhaps it's about sharing your feelings with another person slowly at first and then taking that seriously and that's built that level of trust. You know, with trust comes freedom. When you were trusted that first time to take the car out on your own, you experienced a level of freedom that you'd maybe not experienced before. You weren't having to rely on anybody to give you a lift anywhere anymore. You could get there yourself. And that brought to you a level of freedom. In a relationship, when there's a relationship of trust, it brings freedom. Freedom from anxiety and worry about being yourself and being free to be yourself. Freedom from anxiety and worry about what another person thinks of you. And in these days, by the way, where uh, we are so often judged by other people on social media and in all those forums and all of that kind of stuff, having a relationship of trust where you're totally free to be yourself is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? But sometimes, and we've been reminded of this too on the live chat this morning, thank you so much for sharing, people have been sharing vulnerably on the chat this morning, people have been reminding us that sometimes trust gets knocked back, that something happens and that knocks that trust back. And it can take time for that to be rebuilt and restored. So now I want to ask this question. Who do you trust? And who has demonstrated trust in you? Who have you wanted to trust you? And how have you gone about proving yourself to be worthy of that trust? And here's another question I want to ask. It's all questions this morning. Here's another question I want to ask. Imagine you were God. And you can do this whether you, you would say you're a religious person or not. That, that's no problem. Imagine, though, if you were God, how would you get people to trust you? Imagine you were God, and, and not just uh, uh, any God, but a, a God who longed to have a relationship with human beings who long to have an intimate connection with human beings because you as God know that's the best way for human beings to live. But you wanted to encourage those human beings to enter into a relationship with you. What would you do to build that level of trust, to show yourself to be worthy of that level of trust so that a human being would want to reciprocate and be in a relationship with you? What would you do if you were God? Well, that's the question we've been answering through this series that we started this uh, last week. It's the question we're going to be answering again today. It's a question that throughout actually all of Christmas here at ABC, we're thinking about how can we see and know God? How does God show himself to be worthy of the trust of human beings? How has God made a way for human beings to be in relationship with him? How has God made a way for us to see his very nature and his character? How does God reach out to us to build trust with us? Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower already, if you believe in the Christian God, 
then our hope and prayer is that through this series, you'll grasp once again, or maybe grasp in a deeper and newer way, just how extraordinary and amazing and awe-inspiring it is, the way that God reaches out to do all of those things. The way God becomes one of us. And it's our hope and prayer that that will take you to an even more uh, awe-inspired place of who God is and what God has done. And if you're not a Christian, first of all, you're so welcome with us here at ABC. We long to be a church where people who are exploring faith feel really at home and welcome and included. And if that's you, it's our hope that through this series, through this Christmas season, you will get to see just why it is that those of us who are Christians believe what we believe about God and just how the Christian faith is not built on some sort of can't see it, pie in the sky when you die kind of faith. That the Christians don't believe in that kind of God. That actually Christianity and the Christian faith is rooted in this idea, this living hope in a God who has shown himself and shown what he is like and shown his nature and his character and demonstrated himself to be worthy of our faith and our trust. And I hope that if you're not yet a Christian, if you're exploring faith, you will get to see why we're so excited about this God that we follow. And we hope that that will be inspiring and encouraging to you. And last week, Alex opened up our series by talking about how can we really see God? That God became one of us so we can really see God and the character and nature of God. And this week I'm asking the question, how can we really trust God? How can we really trust God? Now, 2,000 years ago, in a far-flung part of the Roman Empire, as it was then, People were waiting. They believed that God had promised them a Messiah, a saving one, someone to lead them into a new and better relationship with God, someone to save them, to redeem them, to restore them. They were waiting and wondering, how is God going to do that? And whilst they were waiting and wondering, they were living according to a set of religious laws and rituals and behaviors that God had given them so that they could have a relationship with him. They were waiting and living according to those rules and laws and rituals. But they were waiting, really. They were waiting for the next stage in their relationship with God. And actually, do you know what? I think the world was waiting as well. The world was waiting, not just this bunch of people. Because, you know, the world was full of evil and butchery and savagery. It was a world where people weren't valued where the poor were discarded and hopeless. It was a world where people in power did just what they wanted with no consequences at all. And so the world was waiting. And the world was wondering, could God be trusted to deal with all of this? And one of Jesus's first followers was a guy called Paul. And he wrote to a bunch of people in a place called Galatia, where he'd been involved in starting a, a church for people who were new to following Jesus. And he wrote to them to tell them that the waiting and the wondering was over. And God had intervened. And Paul was trying to convince them that God could be trusted. That because of the way that God had intervened, God was worthy of them giving their lives to. He was worthy of their faith. He was worthy of their trust. 
And throughout the entire letter that he wrote to the people in Galatia, Paul is building an argument. And he's building an argument for the existence of God. He's building an argument about what God has done. He's building an argument that a relationship with God is possible. And he makes three really clear points in that letter. Now, we haven't got time to go into the whole letter today. You could go away and have a read of that if you've got a Bible. It's in the New Testament. We haven't got time to go into all of that today. But here are the three clear points that Paul makes throughout that letter about this relationship. Firstly, that that relationship was founded on faith. Secondly, that that relationship was open to everyone and not just to those people who looked religious. And finally that that relationship could be based on what God has done and not on what we do. And I want to look at a section from the third part of that argument. This is based on what God has done and not what we do. And, and Paul, in this example, appeals to an illustration from everyday life. Now, it might not be quite as clear an illustration from our everyday lives as it was to the everyday lives of people 2,000 years ago, but it was an, uh, an example, an illustration to do with inheriting stuff and inheriting uh, estates or money or wealth or whatever it might be. But they would have all understood that. All the people that he was writing to would have understood this whole idea about heirs, heirs to the family, kind of whatever it was, farm, wealth, um, business, whatever it was. And And it had to do with that, and it had to do with sonship. Because in those days, it was the firstborn son who inherited so the people would have understood the, re- the, the, the example that Paul is using here. So Paul wrote this in uh, Galatians chapter 4. And uh, that's where we're going to take a look at today. And it's going to come up here, and I'm going to work our way through it, and we're going to work our way through it together, these few verses. If you've got a Bible, you could open it. If you've got an app, if you want to, you can open it to Galatians chapter 4. Or you can just follow along with me if you'd rather do it that way. So here's the first couple of verses. Paul, this is Paul speaking, he says, what I'm saying, so basically Paul's been making this argument, and now he's going to try and kind of boil it down to the absolute kind of uh, core bits. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So here's the example, it's to do with inheriting, and in these days it was the son who inherited, hence the kind of male pronouns that we have in this, and I know it would be a bit different now, but in these days this was what went on. So he's saying that, so when the oldest male is old enough, or or the father has died, he, the, the, the son, inherits the estate. But only when the father dies, or the son is deemed old enough and responsible enough to take over. Before that... The heir was really no different to anybody else working on the estate. No different to any other of the workers or the slaves, as they would have had then, working on the estate. They had no rights or no privileges until the time when they inherited. And Paul then goes on to link that to the example of the Jewish people, the people of God, the people of Israel, who were living under these religious laws and behaviors that they were uh, using to have a relationship with God that God had given to them. So he says this in verse 3. So also when we were underage, so not yet inheriting, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So before we inherited, we were like somebody with no rights. And actually, we were enslaved. We weren't free. We were enslaved to the forces of the world. The people of Israel were in this childhood period 
where they were under the law and actually they were allowing themselves to be under worldly influences. They were waiting, waiting for something different to happen. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you've ever felt enslaved to the forces of the world that are all around us. Enslaved to something, enslaved to the need to keep up with the Joneses, enslaved to other people's opinions, enslaved to maybe the monotony of life, enslaved maybe to the pressures and cultures of society. Maybe you feel enslaved to the expectations of what other people think you should be. And you're longing to be free, to really be free. And you're waiting and you're wondering. What could I place my trust in that would give me that kind of freedom? Maybe you feel like you've been waiting actually your whole life, or maybe something's happened more recently in your life that feels enslaving to you and you're longing for freedom. The people that Paul's writing to and the people of Israel didn't realize that there was something more for them, that freedom was waiting for them. And Paul goes on. He says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So here he gets to the nub. And he says, look, this is the reason why God can be worthy of your trust, a trust that will free you. Because when the time was just right, when the time was just right, the time that God decided on, because he knows best, when the time was right, he sent his son. The world was waiting, but when the time was just right, God sent his son. He sent his son to do what? He sent his son Jesus to do what? Well, we're told to redeem those under the law, to redeem those who have been enslaved, who need to be set free. Redeeming is a word that, again, lots of Paul's listeners or readers would have understood because a slave in those days could be redeemed by being purchased. Their freedom could be purchased by them or by somebody else. And when they were set free, when they were redeemed, they were set free because their freedom had been purchased so Paul is saying here that God sent his son, when the time was just right, God sent his son to redeem those, to set people free. Those people who had been waiting, those people who felt enslaved, those people who felt enslaved to the religious laws and rituals of the day. They could be redeemed, they could be purchased, they could be set free. That's what redemption means. And what's the outcome of all of that? Well, that we might receive adoption to sonship, to be adopted into the family of God, or using the illustration that Paul has been using up to now, to usher in the period of full inheritance, full rights, full freedom. They come after Jesus arrives, and Jesus is, redeems people by dying on a cross and rising again three days later, and sets them, you, me, humanity, free. When Jesus arrives and does his work and fulfills his mission, he redeems people. And once Jesus had done his redeeming work, the barrier between God and people was knocked down. They could inherit the whole estate and now be a fully acknowledged and adopted son or daughter with all the rights of inheritance that that infers. Uh, 
and all the freedom from slavery that that brings. And there is a critical word in these verses, which I don't want us to miss, and it's this. Receive. God did what God did so that people could receive, not work hard for, not earn, not buy, but simply receive. And that is at the very heart. In fact, these verses, these two or three verses, are at the very heart of the Christian faith, the very heart of what Christians believe. That when the time was just right, God sent his son to redeem human beings so they could be free. They could trust fully and completely in God. They could find that freedom because of what Jesus does to redeem human beings. And because it's what Jesus does, all we have to do is receive it like a gift from God. And then look even further, if we want more than this, verse 6 tells us, well, what does this start to mean when we receive this amazing gift? Because now you are his sons, or we might say, I think, justifiably, sons and daughters, given we're living in a slightly different time of inheritance. Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts, the spirits who calls out, Abba, Father. So God says the outcome of this adoption and this redemption into the family of God is that we can have this intimate connection with God, because this This word Abba was like the most intimate way of addressing a father. It's like daddy. This relationship, this intimate relationship with God is now possible because of what Jesus has done. I'm trying to think of a a way to try and illustrate the intimacy of this connection. Here's the best one that came to my mind. When our kids were younger, uh, both my wife and I worked uh, for a church. This was the previous church that we were in. And we both worked uh, for that church, which made life really busy on Sundays. And it meant we had to be there early and we had to stay late and all of that sort of stuff on Sundays. And our kids would, would come because they came with us, to, well, they didn't have a choice, but they, so they came with us uh, to church. And because we were busy doing stuff, often they were kind of maybe a bit on their own or not, uh, we weren't able to talk to them or whatever. So I invented this sign that only we knew, like the secret porter sign, that meant I love you. So that meant if I was deep in conversation with somebody over one side of the room and I could see my kids or one of my kids out the corner of my eye in the other, heart, in the other side of the room, rather than trying to yell across, which would have been one of them's here, would have been really, really embarrassing. I could simply make the secret sign and tell them that I loved them from the other side of the room and the busyness of a Sunday. I don't know whether that's the same, but that felt like an intimate family thing to us. We don't do it anymore, you'll be pleased to know. Too embarrassing for them now. But it was like that, and that's the closest I can get to trying to explain what this intimate connection is. It's that kind of intimate family relationship with God that's available to us, Paul is saying, when we receive the gift of redemption. It's this intimate expression that's available through the Spirit of God, the presence of God. And there's one final thing that I want to say today that comes from verse 7 that that, that is another consequence of receiving this gift. So you are no longer a slave, right? You're now free, but now you're, you're no longer a slave, but God's child in his family. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul says that people who receive this gift are no longer slaves. They are free, that the waiting is over that they are children of God, but an inheritor 
of all that God has, the kingdom of God, an eternity with God, a life spent alongside someone who knows what it's like to be us, who understands how we feel, inheritance of the whole deal, the free. Now, God's timing is perfect, and it might not always feel like that. It might not feel that way, particularly if you're waiting or something has happened to you and you've experienced something in your life that feels like it's disconnected you from that trust relationship with God. And you're asking the question, can God really be trusted given all that I've experienced or been through? It might not feel like God's timing is perfect. It might not feel like God can be trusted, particularly if you're waiting or you've had those kind of experiences. And maybe you're waiting now, waiting for life to get better waiting for a greater sense of meaning or purpose, waiting for trust to be restored, waiting for something to change or something to be different, waiting to find that perfect someone, waiting for that new career opportunity, waiting for that situation to get better, waiting for, for, for you to feel emotionally or physically or spiritually healed, waiting for that day when you are financially free, whatever it is. But for the, the most important thing, and all of those things are important, and all of those things are deep within us. But for the most important thing, the waiting is over. Because when the time was right, God sent his son. And that means that the waiting for freedom, the waiting for a relationship with God, the waiting for love is over. And sometimes we don't understand why God isn't stepping into a situation or intervening in a, into a situation that thing that we're waiting for. But we do know, for the most important thing, the waiting is over. And when we get towards Christmas, I want us to remember this. The waiting is over because when the time was right, God sent his son. And that's why God can be trusted. And that's why God is worthy of our trust. And when we trust God, we find freedom. And God is worthy of our trust because he gave everything, his son, when the time was just right to redeem you, to free you, to liberate you, and to show that once for once and for all that there is an Abba, a father who loves you. So how can I really trust God? If God has done that, how can I really trust God? And this is true for you whether you've been a Christian for ages or whether you're exploring faith and maybe you want to put your faith in this God that you can trust for the very first time. How do you do it? Well, number one, receive forgiveness. Receive freedom. Receive the redemption that God brings. Number two, receive adoption as his child and receive that welcome into his family and start to connect with him as, his, as your Abba, Father, and receive the gift of his son, Jesus, for all that he did for you and for me. It's a great time at Christmas, isn't it, to be talking about receiving. It's also good to be talking about giving, I know that too. But we're going to receive, I hope, all of us may receive one gift or two. It's a great opportunity to be thinking about receiving, but the most precious gift of all is given to us by God, and we simply have to receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, so, so much, that the Christian God, you, the one we, we, I believe in, many of us around here believe in, 
is not one who is far off or distant, but one actually that became one of us. You are a God who became one of us. And that just blows our minds. We can't really grasp it in its entirety, to be honest. But Lord, we thank you that you became one of us. You gave us Jesus to show, you, to show us who you are, your nature and your character, and to free us and redeem us and liberate us. And we thank you that because you gave the greatest gift of all, because you became one of us, we can trust you. You are worthy of our trust. Help us, I pray, Lord God, to receive those gifts of freedom, adoption, of Jesus again today and again this Christmas time. And for those of us who are struggling, really struggling to trust you right now, because of things that have happened to us or are happening to us, because we're waiting or we're uncertain, we have doubt. Lord God, help us just to have the courage right now and just the, the basic level of trust right now to just reach out and say, Lord, I, I want to receive you. I don't understand, I don't get it. I'm not sure where I am with you right now, but I do want to receive you. And I pray for those of us who are in that place that we might encounter you as we receive you.